Good morning, everybody. Good morning to those folks that are worshiping with us at home. So if you have your Bibles, come with me to uh, John uh, chapter 10 this morning. Last week, uh, we looked at uh, basically verses 1 through 21, and we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 22 and carry it through to the end of the chapter. And so let's pray together, uh, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and uh, how you uh, inspire our hearts uh, to turn towards you through singing and prayer. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, study your word this morning, uh, Lord, that you do the same thing, that you draw us and establish our hearts secure in Christ, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to uh, the scriptures, uh, we come with the, we come to them looking at at two things primarily. We come uh, looking at the historical context, and then the the words themselves, which we could. This is a scary term for some of us. We look at the grammar. Well, maybe not too many people, but I was, that was a scary topic when I was in fourth and fifth and sixth grade. But when we come and try to understand the scriptures, we, we look at them through the lens of history. In other words, what actually took place and what can we learn from that? Because they inform, the historical context informs us of the background of the text itself. And then we look at the words and who's saying what and how did they say it. And sometimes we look at some verb tenses and, um, and so that we can have a full understanding of what the Lord wants us to uh, allow into our hearts. And so when we come to this text this morning, John chapter 10, verse 22, come to that first verse with me. John writes this, at the time... The Feast of Dedication, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And so what John is giving us here, he's giving us some really good insight into actually what is taking place and what Jesus is doing. And it's at a particular feast, and the feast is the Feast of Dedication. And so... To fill out the historical context, I have a little video clip for you. Now, if you're at home, Jennifer is going to send out that link. You can click on it. You can watch along with us. But because of copyright issues, we can't, like, we can't show you simultaneously with us that are sitting here. But to understand the historical context, is, it's imperative. Or we lose the grammatical understanding of what's taking place. And, and get this, we'll, we'll lose the application for us today. And so those things are joined together, history and grammar. And so that's how we understand the text. And so you might say, how can any truth come out of the History Channel? Well, here you go. There's truth. <laughs> Every winter, Jewish families gather to light a branched candelabra called a menorah. For eight nights, they celebrate their families and celebrate their faith. 
The holiday is called Hanukkah, also known as the Festival of Lights. When we think of Hanukkah, we think of the menorah. Its eight flames burn in testament to a glorious victory that took place over 2,000 years ago. Around 200 BC, the Jewish people in Jerusalem were living under Egyptian rule, though they remained largely free to work and worship in accordance with their customs. Then, in 175 BC, Antiochus IV Epiphanes ascended to the Syrian throne, invaded Egypt, and desecrated Jerusalem. In an attempt to assimilate the Judean people, Antiochus forced them to worship Greek gods and outlawed Judaism, banning all Jewish rituals upon threat of death. The ultimate insult came in 168 BC, when Antiochus seized the Jewish holy temple in Jerusalem and dedicated it to the worship of Greek god Zeus. For a Jewish high priest named Mattathias, it was time to take a stand. Together with his five sons, Mattathias sparked a revolt, pitting the desperate Jewish faithful against vastly superior Syrian armies. The battle raged for three years. Against improbable odds, the Jewish uprising, led by Mattathias's son, Judah Maccabee, emerged victorious. Judah Maccabee and his small army of soldiers recaptured Jerusalem in 165 BC and liberated the Holy Temple. According to the Talmud, the Jewish high priests eagerly prepared to light the ceremonial menorah, the eternal flame which would rededicate the desecrated temple to the glory of God. But they found that the Syrians had defiled all but a small flask of oil. It was enough to light the menorah, but for a single night. Hours turned to days, and miraculously, the menorah burned on until eight nights had passed and more oil could be produced. It was time for Hanukkah, Hebrew for dedication. Against all odds, the menorah had not been extinguished, and so the flames of the branched menorah are a potent symbol of the Jews' indomitable faith. The menorah holds nine candles, with the center candle used to light one candle on each of the eight nights of Hanukkah. During Hanukkah, children play a game with a dreidel, a four-sided spinning top with a Hebrew character on each of its faces. It is thought that the dreidel began during the reign of King Antiochus, when Jews secretly gathered to study the Torah. If soldiers arrived, the Jews could pretend to be gambling. Jewish adults also give small sums of money, or gelt, to children during the holiday. And though not traditionally a holiday for gifts, Hanukkah's proximity to Christmas on the calendar has made it customary to exchange gifts on one or all of the eight nights. For Jews around the world, Hanukkah is a time to reflect on the strength and spiritual resolve of the Jewish people. It is a celebration of triumph over religious persecution and of a miracle that kept a menorah lit for eight nights. Not bad, huh? So Antiochus, think Hitler in your mind. So Antiochus comes and he is ruthless with the Jewish people. He takes 10,000 plus captive. He murders, destroys, pillages, rapes at will. And the Jewish people, they, through the Maccabees, they rose up 
and defeated the Syrian king and delivered Jerusalem from oppression. And they found this, this menorah, right? And one little flask of oil. And they rededicated the temple with that one flask, thinking, well, it's better to light the menorah for one day than none. And God does what? He does a miracle. And what we see through this historical context is we see two miracles, if you would. We see God delivering his people, and we see the candelabra illumined. It's interesting that when you look at the Syrian king's name, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes means this. It means, it means really God's glory or God's light. And so God uses this uprising by the Maccabees. The candelabra is lit, and God delivers his people from oppression. And that is deeply embedded in the hearts of the Jewish people several hundred years later, almost 300 years later, when we come to verse 22. Come back there with me. At that time, the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Dedication also had two other names. What are those names? You've, I think you've already heard them. Hanukkah's one, which means dedication. And then it's called the Feast of Lights, which refers to the menorah being lit and that miracle that took place. And so Jesus comes in the midst of that celebration that the children of Israel were celebrating, and he comes into their midst, and if we take another step into the historical context, we know this, that during this period of time, the Jews were also being oppressed by the Romans at that time. And so in their minds, here we go. Jesus is walking in the temple courts. Come back to the text with me. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Hanukkah occurs when? The end of November to sometime in December because they operate on a lunar calendar. And so it varies from year to year. And in this year, I think it's, don't hold me to this. Someone's going to Google it immediately and let me know. But I believe it's December 22nd this year. And what, ha what, what is taking place here is, uh, come to the next verse with me. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So you have these columns, and it's an open-air courtyard, and you've got a roof over it, so it might be raining in the winter season. And Jesus, wa Jesus is walking in the temple courts, and we come to the next verse. Next verse is verse 24. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the Greek here gives you a little bit more forcefulness to their, they weren't just kind of chumming up to Jesus. The literal kind of uh, way the words are used is that they encircled Jesus with a hostile intent. And so they were getting in, they were getting in Jesus' face, and they wanted to know a simple they wanted to know a simple 
or get a simple answer from Jesus, they asked him, come back to the text with me. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us what? Tell us plainly. What did they want to hear from Jesus? What was their expectation? They wanted a repeat of the Maccabean revolt. They wanted a repeat that Jesus would be the Messiah, the conquering Messiah, that their expectation was that Jesus would come and God would deliver them again from oppression. Come back to the text. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In verse 25, Jesus answered them, I've already told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And so what the expectation is of the people, of the Jews of the day, is come on, God, do it again. Their expectation was to be delivered from Roman oppression. Their expectation was that Jesus was the person that was going to do it. And so they said, stop messing around with us. Tell us plainly. And then Jesus infuriates them, tweaks them. And he says, I've already told you. And what had Jesus already told them? That he had come as the son of God, that he had come to do the works of his father, that we know from the servant Psalms in Isaiah that his first coming would be as a suffering servant. We know from, what do they know? They know what we know, that John the Baptist came before him to prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist described Jesus' ministry as behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. He came to be that sacrifice. He came to lay down his life. Now, he would come again as that conqueror. But right now, the expectation of the Jewish people was that they wanted Jesus to be the political solution, the military solution of their day at their time, and that was their expectation. Jesus, God the Father, and Jesus were doing something different than their expectations. In other words, they were... God the Father had sent the Son to be a propitiation, to be an atonement, to be a substitute, to go to the cross for our sins, right? So that we, through faith in Jesus Christ, that as we believe in him, he would forgive our sins, he would be our substitute, he would be our kinsman redeemer, and because of our trust and faith in him, we our sins would be forgiven, we would experience regeneration, and we would be adopted into God's family, not based upon works, but by grace, by expressing faith in Christ's atoning work. And so God was doing something extraordinary, something that's never happened before. God the Son left the Father's glory inside 
and became born of a virgin and lived a sinless life so that we could have relationship with God. God was doing something different than the expectations of the people. Were the expectations of the people wrong? No, it's not wrong to want deliverance. But that's not what God was doing. So here's the application. How many times in your life do you have an expectation that God is going to do something, but he's doing something different? How many times in your life did you plan out your life? And then as some of the guys and women know that the economy went south, but they stayed north. And the, the retirement that they wanted, well, it just went poof. Or how many times in your life that have you looked forward in your life and you had, you know, painted your picture, you wrote your history, you've got your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, you've been to your financial advisor, you know you got it, but something doesn't quite work out. And so instead of the retiring at 55, you're looking at, ooh, that's a long way away. Or how about this? You're, you're, you're in high school, and you know you got that, you you know you got that chemistry class, and you know that a poor grade on the chemistry class, well, it's going to close some doors, and then you come to that chemistry class, and you you think this is hypothetical? No, this is my life. I have a dear friend, you know her well, A. Dot Perello. Her name then was Dot Condry. So we were in chemistry class and we had plans for our life. Except chemistry class, well, if you've ever taken it, you know it ain't easy. Dorothy failed and I got a gentleman's C because the teacher liked me. Closed the door, opened other doors. What happens and how do you respond to life when, when your expectations, well, God's just doing something different. It's not that your expectations are wrong. You've had a, you know, you raised your children and you've claimed it, you know, to raise them up in the Lord. And when they're old, they'll not what? But they did. They did. See, God was doing something different and their expectation was for something else. When that happens to you, what do you do? Well, Jesus doesn't leave them hanging and he certainly doesn't leave us hanging. And in Jesus' response to them, he goes back to, he goes back to that, that image of the good shepherd. And he goes back to that image for a purpose because that the place of our security and the place of our courage and the place of our joy in this life is not found so much will God meet <laughs> the expectations that we have for life or, or is it this way, that during the events of life, he's always faithful. During the difficulties of life and the changes of life and the, and the doors that get closed in life, that he's always there for us. He'll never leave us and never forsake us. That in the midst of our darkest day, he has that plan that we need to see. What happens in life 
when your expectation isn't what God is doing. Come back to the text with me. Jesus says this to them in verse 27. He says, My sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And what Jesus is doing is he's inviting them once again to come into a relationship with him. He says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them. It's an echo of all that we looked at last week in verses four and five of the same chapter. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his what? They know his voice. We can go on in verse nine. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, speaking of access through the blood of Jesus Christ, he will be saved. How about verse 11? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. And least we not forget, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that, that, that you may have life and have life abundantly. If the circumstances of your life and your expectations of your life are one way, but maybe God's doing something different. And he invites you to come into that 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 relationship that you have with him because he is always what? He is always faithful and he is always good. God is always good. And I can tell you in the midst of that, getting that failing grade in chemistry, you're not thinking God's good. You're thinking, whoa, what's next? Maybe I'll retake it. That happens in college life too. Anybody take organic chemistry? You thought high school chemistry was good. How about organic chemistry? Or maybe you're not quite, you know, maybe you did fine in algebra one and algebra two, and then you get it, then you get to advanced statistical models and analysis for interventions and crises <laughs> under the social service umbrella. And you go, oh, do I need help? I hear the calling to be a pastor. And then you hit Greek, and you get a gentleman's C, and then Hebrew's waiting for you. We, we all have these expectations, but events in life, if that is our security, it makes for a very insecure life. Look at the next verse. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And this is the metaphor that Jesus is using is about sheep. Now, I don't know what sheep think. I know what the Bible relates sheep to people and it must be a pretty wild little world in there, in the sheep world, because you're always thinking as a sheep. Is, my, is this my day? Is this my day to become a pork chop? Is this it? A, ooh, that, that. They'll rewind the tape and clean that up. You know, the first service, I made the same mistake at the 8.30. And then they're, they're like sheep, kind of dull, you know. They didn't get it. A lamb chop. 
Oh, my goodness. Lord, help me. I know your expectations for Sunday morning were one way. <laughs> but is God doing something different? <laughs> That'll preach, right? <laughs> it says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then if that isn't enough, he gives us a picture of the heart of God the Father that he gifts to the Son, you and I. Take a look at the text, verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you went to Romans chapter 8, Paul approaches the same truth, but I would say with more depth, more, say, poetically. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, the Lamb of God. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge to God's people? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors. Because we have a good shepherd. Were the expectations of the Jewish people wrong? No. To live in oppression to the extent that they were, that's a good prayer. But even in the most difficult times of life, God has one objective in your life. And that's not to your five-year plan. It's not to your, the goals your financial planner has set for you. I mean, finishing high school, I, I think that's a good plan. But that's not the ultimate plan for God. God's will in your life. The ultimate plan is, is he's forming Christ in you. And all these things that come in and out of our life are just simple opportunities for you and I to grow in Christ and to put our confidence in a good shepherd, not the hired hand, in the good shepherd that lays down his life for us. The rest of the text, verse 30 through 38, we could drill down on it and another profound truth, we could get to the core of it in verse 35. This, Jesus says this, the scriptures, the scriptures shall not be broken. 
And in our text here, Jesus shares with the people, I and the Father are one. They say, how? Jesus affirms, it's the evidence. It's the man that was born blind. Don't you see? But they don't see. And so Jesus takes two verses out of Psalm 82, verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6, the Almighty God, the all-powerful sovereign God, calls human judges, small g, because they reflect his ministry and his will to the poor. Yet these judges don't follow through. So in 86.7, the Lord says, it'll cost you your life. And what Jesus does to the religious leaders of the day is say, you don't even follow your own scripture. You don't even believe your own scripture. I come from the sovereign God, the Father's will to do these miracles. Do, do you remember the man that was paralyzed for 38 years and I healed him? Don't you remember the man born blind? that I healed him? Don't you remember the promises of the Old Testament that I fulfilled? The scriptures will not be broken. And when life comes, the application is we can trust in the good shepherd who's given us the scriptures and the scriptures will not be broken. And so we can build our life on the rock of his word and his personhood, because he is true and right. The end of this text comes to this in verse 39. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't deny the evidence. And Jesus engages them in, in rabbinical discourse and rabbinical debate and leaves them undone intellectually. And they say there's only one way to deal with this guy. And they pick up a stone, yet as we've seen time and time again, his time was not yet ready. He's going to go back across the river. He's going to go to where John the Baptist's ministry was. And then in three months, he's going to come back. And in three months, it's going to be Palm Sunday when he comes back to Jerusalem. But let's finish out the text. Verse 39, and again they sought to arrest him, but it was not his time. Their expectation was to do one thing, but God was doing something else. What's God doing in your life today? What are your expectations? And it just may be that the things you have planned out for your life, they may all and well be great, but it's just not what God's doing today. When that happens, I, with all my heart, I say lean into our shepherd who's good and is always good. Lean into the word of God because as Jesus has told us, it is trustworthy. It'll never be broken. And if you do that in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your life, in the midst of, of, of your uh, 
trying to figure out, I thought you'd do this. Faith will arise in your heart. Trust and courage will fill your heart because you know you have a good shepherd. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Neither height nor death, nor famine, nor persecution, nothing in all of creation can ever, what was that? Yeah, I knew that one. Never snatch you out of his hand. Never snatch you. Secure in the good shepherd. Abiding in the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. When you do that, he'll bring you to those still waters, those green pastures. And he'll do this. Here's the promise. He'll restore your soul. And so if you've come here today and your world is in chaos, you are right where God is designed for you to be so that you would know this simple truth is that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. And he is working in and through your situation to bring about a Christ-likeness in your life. These people in Jesus' day, they were tired of oppression, hoping for another Hanukkah. And they missed the good shepherd of Israel in their midst. Let us have faith that God is working in the midst of each and every situation in our life to grow us and to mature us into Christ-likeness. Can you say amen?